If you brought along a copy of the Bible, find our Old Testament reading. It's the book of Micah. It's a little to the right of center like some of you. (laughs) But not like all of you. Now, this book of the Bible was, um, it's from 2300 years ago. So, the last half of the 8th century BC. And it deals with Israel at that time. So, listening to it, reading it, we can learn what God cared about back in the day. But, this is the Bible. It's not a record merely of what God has done. It's not merely a record of Israel's religion. It is the living word of God. And so it's not just what God was doing then. We can hear in this God's word to us today. Now, if you were with us last week, Sam preached from Micah chapter 2. And we heard about those greedy land barons. So look at Micah chapter 2. Notice verse 2. These guys, it says, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now, think about this in light of the Ten Commandments that we read and responded to a few minutes ago. In the Ten Commandments, they start out with, I'm the Lord your God, have no other gods but me. And then it says, no idols. So these two first, the the Bible, the Ten Commandments begins with this kind of strong warning that there are other gods. There are other things you can relate to the way you should relate to God. And then the last of the Ten Commandments is, does anybody remember? Don't covet. And if you know the rest of it, anything that belongs to your neighbor, right? So it's, now think about this. If, if you're with a, a loved one and you're giving them a really important message, a, a lot of times in important moments, the first thing we say and the last thing we say is the important stuff. Now, the Ten Commandments sort of function that way. The, the beginning of them and the end of them are definitely meant to kind of hold all of them together. So it's interesting that the Ten Commandments start with, look, even if you live in a modern, scientific, sophisticated society, there are things in this world you can relate to as a God other than God. And be careful. And then the very last thing we're told about is the power of covetousness. It's, It's as if this is the idol that we need to be most on guard against. And in fact, that is the case, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, when Jesus was talking about serving something other than God, notice how he says it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the first and love the second or be devoted to the first and despise the second. You cannot serve both God and wealth. So there's Jesus. When Jesus is putting idolatry on our radar, he brings up money. Greed, covetousness. He holds them together. You see, idolatry is the ultimate sin that puts us outside of relationship with God and the community of faith and idols are dangerous and they steal our love and they steal our trust and our allegiance and our service from God. 
And money is a particularly powerful thing. It's not value neutral. It's not something you can just come up next to and not be on your guard against. Money has a peculiar power to capture us and to get us to relate to it in a way that we shouldn't. So when Jesus in Luke chapter 12 warns his followers about all kinds of greed, Luke 12, 15, he immediately follows it up with a story about a farmer who's destroyed in the midst of his prosperity because he hoarded his wealth and he failed to be rich toward God. It's not that he had a lot of money. It's that he got twisted in his relationship with it. And then he follows that story up in Luke chapter 12, verses 19 to 31, with another story about getting out of relationship with money in a way you shouldn't. It's the story of a rich man that God sends to hell because of his failure to let go of his wealth for the sake of his neighbor. And then when we go to Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about eternal judgment declared on the basis of your willingness to share with those in need. This sounds to me like the Ten Commandments. The biggest deal is idolatry. Be very careful when it comes to greed and money and covetousness. It is the idol that will snag at you. Now, in all of these stories that Jesus tells, and there's many more, these stories that Jesus tells about money, he's teaching us that money is not neutral. It is a power, and it wants your worship. And every bit of ourselves that we give to our stuff, we snatch away from our true king. And what is the price we pay for worshiping money? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, God tells us, The love of money, not money, but when you get the wrong relationship, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it has caused some people to wander from the faith and impale themselves painfully with many griefs. That's the story Micah is telling us. He's showing us these greedy land barons have wandered from the faith because of their love of money and they are impaling themselves with many griefs and destruction. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, God tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil that has caused some people to wander from the faith and impale themselves with many griefs. It tells us in verse 9, many foolish and dangerous lusts happen when we fall into the temptation to love money and people will drown in devastation and destruction. When you love money, you will be wounded. You will be impaled. The love of money woos us away from the faith and it wells up into all sorts of evil. It mauls us. And that's what's going on in Micah. 2,300 years ago, these wicked land barons fell in love with money. Now, when we turn to chapter 3, our passage for this morning, God peels this story back to another layer. In chapter 2, he tells us about the wicked land barons greedily grabbing for lands and money. And then in chapter 3, we see that behind these greedy men... The reason they could get away with their terrible behavior 
is because the judges and the pastors were complicit. In Micah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, it says, notice, Hear you heads of Jacob. And at this time in the nation of Israel, the word head here, it means the magistrates, the rulers, which includes the king. They're corrupt. Notice what it says. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people. That's disgusting. Flaying someone. And you tear the flesh from their bones. And you eat the flesh of my people. And you flay their skin from off them. And you break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cart. This is the most disgusting description of Israel among the prophets. You know what's going on here? It's sort of like somebody has harmed you and they don't really believe they've hurt you. So you reach for a metaphor to try to shock them into understanding. Like, you cut me when you said that, right? You're saying, you didn't just say a word, but it actually, this painful thing, cut. God is saying, you are eating people. You're, you're tearing their skin off. The issue is, that's how disgusted God is. With, that's what God thinks. Of what these greedy land barons are doing. God hates economic injustice. He hates it as much as you would hate it if you walked in a room and saw someone flaying a person and cannibalizing them. That's what he feels about economic injustice. And then in verses 5 to 8, we find out it's not just the judges that are kind of propping up this corrupt system and helping it happen, but it's the pastors too. Listen to verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat. Now, what, what's the menu in this passage? But declare war against him who puts nothing into his mouth. You see, what's happening is that People are going to the pastors, they're going to the preachers, they're going to the religious leadership and saying, you should be denouncing this. You should be exposing it. You should be holding the justice system, the rulers, the leaders, the government. You should be holding them accountable. But the pastors are saying, you got anything for me? And the people who are coming to them are people who've been dispossessed and they have no power. And so the pastor's looking at them and they are powerless to provide the religious leadership with anything of substance. But then the wealthy, greedy, powerful people come and they offer them something. And so the pastors have been bought. And that's how this whole system is being propped up. They're refusing to condemn the economic injustice. They're cowards. So that's, so chapter 3, verses one to four, it's about the, the judges, the magistrates, the, the, the leadership of the government, kind of. And then in verses five to eight, it's about the religious leaders. And then in verses nine to 12, God brings them both together, the judges and the pastors. And he says, because of their complicity, notice what is happening. Malachi, M Micah chapter three, verse 10. Zion is built. It's working. It's an economic boom. There's cranes on the skyline. Zion is built with blood. It's not falling down because of this. Things are working out. Jerusalem with iniquity. In other words, the economic practices are producing a flourishing economy. 
Lots of construction projects. The basis of this economic boom is economic injustice. There's an, it's, 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 the way they're getting away with it is that they are removing the safety net for injustice. It's been broken. The economic base of the city's success is the exploitation of the weak. So through this partnership, the greedy land barons, the corrupt judges, and the preachers who can be bought, the city's flourishing. And what is God going to do in response to this? Verse 12. Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. God has multiple ways of looking at the health of a city, of a nation, not just its GDP. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. That, that, we, we read this uh, three, three weeks ago. Micah chapter 1, it says that when the Lord is roused in his anger and he steps foot on the mountains, they will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax. God is a dangerous God. And here's something he will not put up with. We read this in our psalm, Psalm 46. Says that the earth has desolations from God in it. God is going to destroy Jerusalem. But that's not all God is going to do in response to the economic injustice. That's the last bit of chapter 3. Notice in chapter 4 what he's going to do. He's going to restore things. Punishment in chapter 3. Restoration in chapter 4. That's God's response to the greed of Israel. Chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. What is the mountain of the house of the Lord? It's the church. Right? So those of you who grew up in church, what do you, you, some of you re- grew up referring to this place as the house of God. I'm going to the house of God, the church, the house of God. We are the house of God. And how is God going to deal with all of this corruption that fills the earth? He's going to raise up the church higher than all the other mountains. Notice what it says. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up above the hills. That's definitely a reference to Jesus Christ being lifted up. And we who are the body of Christ and the people shall flow to it and many nations shall come to it. And you know what? Think about how hard this was to believe in the Bronze Age. To this little kind of minority group of people, the Israelites. Many nations will flow to it. But look around this room right now. It happened. We are the many nations. Many nations have come into the church. Many nations fill the church. This is happening. Many nations shall come to and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. We did it this morning. Some of you woke up and said, I'm going to go learn. I'm going to go learn about the ways of God. I'm going to go learn about God's work in our world. And that's what we're doing right now. And that's what's happening from the rising of the sun to the setting. We're going to finish this service. And somebody on another time frame, on another hour, they're going to start. And from the rising of the sun to it's going down around the world, this day our Lord will be praised. And people will come to the mountain of the house of God and say, teach us your ways. You see, it's in the church that God's work in this world is going to triumph over greed. Greed and corruption will not have the last word. God's destruction of the greedy will not be the last word. God is going to restore. 
And look how attractive it is. It's so attractive that people are going to say, I want in on that. Notice the second half of verse 3, chapter 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and, they sh- and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The church is going to lead our world into the end of war. No more violence. Isn't that beautiful? Blessed are the peacemakers. And the church has done it over and over and over, and it's going to keep doing it. It's our calling. And in this community, we know peace is our calling. It's one of the great gifts the Mennonites have, for, have called us to not forget we have. But that's not all that's going to happen. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no man shall make them afraid. It's not just the peaceable kingdom. It's an economic kingdom. What are they not afraid of? Well, what's been happening to people with their property? They're they're not going to be afraid of the greedy land barons who in verse 2 see that lovely vine, that beautiful fig tree, that nice property and covet it and seize it and take it away. You're not going to have to be afraid anymore of losing your job right before your retirement is fully vested. You're not going to have to be afraid anymore of of a hostile takeover of your company. You're not going to have to be afraid anymore of people leveraging the courts and the religious environment and the power structures to commit economic injustice. God is going to bring an end to violence. We, We know that in this community. Do you also know there will be an economy in which every person has access to the means of production? Because that's what the fig tree is. It's not a lovely, like, little garden thing that you just look at. It's, it's the means of production. It's your stake in the economy in the Bronze Age agrarian society. It's the way a Bronze Age a farmer participated in the economy. When God's kingdom is fully established, each person will have an economic stake in their neighborhood. An economic place to stand. An economic portion to steward. We know that there is no security, economic or otherwise, apart from God. But it is critical to see in this passage, God has designed humans to experience security in this world. How? Through an economic stake in their community. That's what the fig tree is about. So here we see that God is going to heal and restore every square inch of this creation... And that's not only about beating swords into plowshares, it's about beating swords into plowshares that can be used in economic production so that you've got a way, a stake. Now, our job is to take Micah chapter 3 and chapter 4 and not just look down on ancient Israel, but to look out from this passage at this city and at this nation. And many of you have heard many sermons about working for peace. And we need to hear more of them. But this morning you're not going to hear that. You're going to hear a sermon about economics. Because that's right at the heart of this passage. And since we're not Middle Eastern farmers in a Bronze Age agrarian economy, this can be tricky. Because there are serious differences between our economy and our economic possibilities, and if you're not careful, looking at it as some cute Thomas Kincaid painting can let you off the hook for the economy that you live in. 
So what we're supposed to do is to learn to think about our city from this vision of destruction and restoration that God is giving to Israel. Are there people in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our country who've been cut out from the means of production? Are there people for whom greed and corruption and the system has been leveraged and it's passed the courts of law to disenfranchise those people from a production stake in the economy? Yes, there are. And I'm going to focus on one example because it's very relevant for America today and for our city and for our church. And that's the African-American community. Now, of course, it's obvious that the entire slave system deprived African-Americans of their rewards, of the rewards of their labor, to say nothing of depriving them of the ability to gain wealth. And while the Civil War ended slavery, it did not end the economic disenfranchisement of African-Americans from a stake in the production side of our economy. I mean, just a few kind of high points of the way America's handled this In 1862, African-Americans were intentionally, deliberately excluded from the Homestead Act. I own my house on 255 Franklin Street because of the impact of the Homestead Act in my family history. My African-American brothers and sisters don't have that. They were excluded from that. And then from the 1930s to the 1960s, African Americans were shut out of the single greatest wealth-building initiative in our nation's history, FHA-backed mortgages. If you are African American, you can't have in on this. And many of you in this room don't know this, but you own your home and your family accumulated enough wealth for you to get a home because of the luck of the genetic draw. And on top of all that, exclusion. In the 1950s and 60s, the racist government housing policies destroyed black homes and communities in the name of urban renewal. And I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again and again and again until you learn it and you know it. We know it in our bones. Here's how it happened in Harrisonburg. 1958, our city developed Project R4 that targeted 28 acres that lay between Main Street, Gay Street, Rock Street, and Johnson Street. The city took photos of all the buildings in the area so that they could be appraised and their owners reimbursed when the city forced them to move out. It was an early use of our city's eminent domain powers. Homes were not the only structures bulldozed or burned. The project also took over African-American churches and businesses as well as cities, the city's Jewish synagogue. Residents were moved into some of the city's first housing projects so that the land could be put to commercial use and remain so today. So, city comes to you, pays you a, an underwhelming price for your property, and moves you into the projects. We replaced the African-American neighborhood in Harrisonburg with the county office building, the 7-Eleven, Roses, AutoZone, the giant parking lots, and the Carter Bank building. We're still profiting from this. The building we just bought. All in the name of getting rid of urban blight. 40 acres, 200 families. Eminent domain, forcibly relocated. 
Now what's, and this, is played, this played out all over America. Now what's the result of all of this? Well, largely because of these social injustices, median wealth among white families in America is 11 times higher than black and Hispanic families. 11 times higher. Is that because white people work harder? Is it because African Americans aren't smart enough? Like, are you comfortable saying that? The Pew Research Center reports that as of 2013, the median net worth of white households was $141,900, and the median net worth for black households in America was $11,000. It's crucial to recognize that there are people who are in poverty because they are lazy. But unless you're willing to say that an entire ethnic group is lazier than another ethnic group, there's something else going on. There are people in our society that cannot get a stake in the production side of the economy, refugees. Those whom our education system has failed, people with disabilities, the Native American population, and people who grow up in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, and people who are coming out of jail. All of these groups struggle to find jobs that pay wages high enough to allow them to sit under their own fig tree with no fear. Back in 2013, 40% of all workers in the U.S., are, since 2013, are in temporary contract or non-traditional employment. You see, after the 2008 recession, a significant proportion of the jobs that came back came back in the low-wage sectors, leading many individuals and families across the nation to enter the ranks for the first time of the working poor. Harrisonburg. A very important study done of, of the communities of Virginia, including ours, called ALICE. It indicates that our unemployment is very low, 3.5%. It's good. Our underemployment, 65% of our city. 26% of the residents of Harrisonburg, and this does not include out-of-town college students, 26% of our city lives at or below the poverty level. Is it because you're smarter than them? Is it because... No, do you see, there's got to be more going on here than just individual kind of like failings. There's systemic issues going on here. An additional 39% are not technically in poverty, but they're below the threshold for what it takes to support and sustain an economically viable household. 65% of our city. Enough with the statistics. The point is, the economic and social systems of our world are broken in ways that disenfranchise, marginalize, cut people out from the production side of the economy. Just as much as there's war and violence, there's this. And just as much as we love the memorized beat their swords into plowshares, they're sit under your own fig tree, your own means of production, and don't have a fear that it's going to be taken from you. In a world that's been broken by the fall, we must recognize that some, not all, but some people struggle with unemployment or underemployment because they've been sinned against, not because they're sinning. And yes, some people don't want to work. That's definitely an issue. But that cannot cause us to lose sight of the fact that there are enough people in our very own city for whom the biggest problem is not that they don't want to work, 
It's that they can't find the right work. Now, what are we to do with all this? It's Advent. We heard Sam read to us from Matthew 3. Our job is to prepare the way of the Lord. How do we prepare the way of the Lord? Repent. When Jerusalem stood before the judgment seat of Christ, ignorance was not a successful defense. We have no excuse. We can, none of us can say, but I didn't know. Lack of access to information is not this room's struggle. This is our city. We have to know this about our city. We have to know this about our world. Remember when Jamar Tisby was here? He gave a lecture and he said, okay, racism in America is like a pedway, that walking path in an airport that you can get on and it takes you faster. To be racist is to get on the pedway and run with it. To be not racist is to get on the pedway and not run with it. It's to just stand there. To be anti-racist is to get on the pedway and walk backwards. You can't just do nothing when the systems are moving in a certain direction. So what is our job? Our job is to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We need young people to go into politics. Politics is a calling worthy of the Christian. It is hard but good work. And politics is a way to love your neighbor in a tragic and fallen world. If politics is the art of the possible, it can also be a prudential way to secure justice and beat back evil and mitigate the effects of the fall. But when we get involved in politics... As a Christian, we do it with wide-eyed realism because we realize that on chapter 3, it's life in the fall, and chapter 4 is life and kingdom come, and that tension is not going to be solved apart from the return of the king. So when we get involved, we know that there's not going to be any like, I'm going to join politics and fix all this forever. No, it's I'm going to go to the coalface, and I'm going to work to move our city inch by inch, bloody step by bloody step, Closer to the kingdom come. That's our job. If God is going to end war, our job is to fight for the end of war. If God is going to bring an economy in which all people have a stake in the production side, then our job is to get in there and work for that. We need people to join politics. But politics is not the only way. We need businessmen and developers and architects. We need, there is one of the biggest problems with affordable housing in Harrisonburg is the builders are saying they can't build cheap houses. We've got to figure this out. And we need architects who can help us build cheap houses that aren't but ugly. <laughs> Janelle and I worked in the housing projects in New Orleans. You would be immoral if you grew up in those projects. The architecture itself would trump your values. We need, we need a full vocational response. Every one of us needs to look at our vocation and say, what can my vocation contribute to this? And so many of you are doing this. You've joined boards like Habitat for Humanity and the Zoning Commission and your therapists working with people in trauma. And you need to keep going and finding the connections between your life, your neighborhood, your work, and this city and those who have been disenfranchised. And all along the way, we labor with hope. We work for the th way things ought to be. Because we know that the long arc of the universe is bending toward justice. And so we work with that hope. Let's pray.